Well, good morning. It's good to be together this morning. And uh, we are continuing, oh, this is open to calendar rather than my notes, that's not very helpful. So we're continuing in our series looking at the book of James. Um, and as if you've been around and joined in with this in the last two months, then you'll know that James is quite a challenging letter, isn't it? It's one of those letters that kind of grabs you and says, do you really believe what you say that you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is king? And if so, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to live? It's one of those kind of equivalents of someone saying to you, if you're happy, then why haven't you told your face? You know, it's kind of like, why is it not kind of quite connected fully into how you're living? And I think it's important we read this letter for what it is. It is incredibly practical and it's given to the early church to help them begin to apply the teachings of Jesus to their day-to-day lives. And it's not at any point designed or intended to undermine the message of the gospel of our salvation. Um, as late John, Pastor John Wimber put it, uh, the way in is the way on. We are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And that doesn't change for no matter how long we've been following Jesus for. And so we read this letter through that lens. There's a call to take our faith seriously, but we do it knowing that we will likely mess up in the process and God's grace is there for us as we do. So with that weekly caveat out of the way, which I feel like we've had to do like a weekly caveat like that before we've read any of the passages in James. So with this weekly caveat out of the way, we're going to read James chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Uh, But the context for these verses, um, just before we come into them, is the start of chapter 4, and he's begun to address internal conflict that's going on in the church and challenge some of the motivations behind that conflict. And in the midst of that, he then says these words, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? So here we go. Challenging passage. If you're new or visiting, then welcome. This is a great Sunday for you to (laughs) join in. (laughs) We're talking about about judgment and judging others in the community of God. It's quite a a hard-hitting passage. And so in Andy Harding fashion, I'm going to do a quiz kind of game (laughs) to lighten the mood before we then get a bit deeper. Um, so I'm going to do something which is probably a bit of an obvious analogy when we're talking about judgment, uh, which is we're going to look at a few optical illusions. Hopefully they're not, uh, hopefully they're new to you, um, but we're going to look at a few of them just now, just examples. So here's one, a nice spiral. Anyone notice anything that's going on with it? Is it a spiral? It's not a spiral. <laughs> it's just circles, concentric circles going in. You see it? Yeah? Seen that before? If you, if you trace it, the circles connect together. It doesn't actually go into the middle. There you go. Next one. It's a grid with broken edges, but if you stare right at the center of the screen for a while, then the broken bits start to disappear. You see that? Is it working for anyone? <laughs> Maybe not. All right, here's the last one. Picture of coffee beans. Anyone else notice something that's what's going on in the coffee beans? Anyone seen it? I took me a long while. Yes, well done, Mary. I'm very impressed. There's a man's face at the bottom. <laughs> you see it? <laughs> I'll let you all point it out. <laughs> 
<laughs> so the great, the great things about optical illusions are that they remind us that while our brains are incredible uh, parts of us, they, they also can trick us at times. They can make us think that there are links which aren't there. They can sometimes mean that we fill in blanks to match patterns that aren't actually patterns. Or we can simply miss something like someone's face in the mix of some coffee beans. <laughs> so none of us have the full picture, even though at times we can think or can become convinced that we do. And I think it's, that's some of the truth of what James is leaning into as he writes these verses. And so as we unpack some of this and its implications, I want to work through three themes which I think we see going on in these two verses. Firstly, God is the right judge, and therefore, we are the wrong judges. And so, what kind of community should we be? God is the right judge, therefore, we are the wrong judges. And so, what kind of community should we be? God is the right judge. Let's start there. James says there is one lawgiver and judge. And first, I think it's important to define exactly what we mean by judgment, because the word has lots of connotations associated with it, and lots of those are not positive associations, are they? Um, the word judgment has often become, become associated with that kind of haughty, judgmental person. We even have that created an adjective, judgy, which describes someone who's largely quite unpleasant to be around, doesn't it? And so because of that, we could kind of feel tempted to not use the word at all, but it is such a key word used throughout Scripture and to the story of salvation. It would seem to me it's better to give it its right definition. And so to define it, to pass judgment on someone, is to make a decisive conclusion about them, to condemn or acquit a person without need for correction or further justification. It is definitive and final judgment, which is why James makes it clear that judgment belongs to God alone. He is the true and right judge, the one who can legitimately and fairly measure and judge his creation without any margin of error. And in fact, the big story of Scripture is the story of God, our Creator, working justly, fairly, and lovingly towards his wayward creation. And if you look right back at the start in Genesis, at the fall, humanity chose to claim the title of God for ourselves. And the right and fair end of that was for us to be separated from God forever because we rejected him. We turned away from him and chose to say we should pursue what we think is best. And that has kind of been the story of humanity since creation. All of us in different ways have done that. I've turned away from God and said, I think I know what's best for my life. But God, which is an incredible two words that we find throughout the New Testament, but God, knowing that only he is able to save us, steps into his creation so that we might have a way of being saved, so that we can turn back towards him and experience life in the way that we were created to. John 3, chapter 3, verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Jesus stands in our place, dies in our place, and is raised to life so that despite our sin, our waywardness, our propensity towards wandering in different directions, we too can now stand redeemed in him with confidence, knowing that we are beloved children of God. But only through Jesus. And for those who choose not to follow him, they remain on that trajectory of separation from God forever. 
that is the right and fair judgment of creation turning away from its creator. So that is, that's the landscape where judgment has its right place for us in the conversation. That's the big story, and it's the story of our redemption. It's the most beautiful exchange as we get to enjoy life with God forever without having done anything to deserve it, but because of the work that he has done for us. And you know, if you're here and this is the first time you've heard that articulated and you want to learn more or explore it more, we'd love to journey that with you and pray for you later on in the gathering. But that's the starting point of this verse, these verses. God is the only right judge. We, on the other hand, are the wrong judges. We aren't able to save or destroy. We don't have the full picture. We can't make definitive and final conclusions about others without getting some things wrong. And we know that, don't we? It's kind of obvious. But it doesn't mean we don't try. We love to try judging people. It's like just second nature, isn't it? And even actually, when I was reflecting on it, despite being in a kind of a time and culture which suggests that we ought to embrace everyone and be non-judgmental in all circumstances, the reality is we also, at the same time, love a good judgy drama, right? Like, there's a reason why Pierce Morgan is really popular. <laughs> there's something in us that kind of is drawn towards the strong, divisive, opinionated people. It's why the talking heads on like breakfast shows and YouTube get huge amounts of views and are big influencers. It's because they present strong, judgmental opinions, right? And in fact, taking the politics out of it, it's interesting to note the language that Nicola Sturgeon used this week in relation to why she was resigning. And there was two words that stood out to me. One of them is the, the brutal nature of politics now and how inhumanly she's been treated. I don't know if you noticed those two things amongst it. And so taking policies and things out of it, the reality is that we still have areas where we're significantly judgmental towards people and stop treating them like humans. All of us can have a go at the judge's seat. And we do it in large ways and in more subtle ways. So I just want to share, hopefully it's, it comes across more subtle rather than large, but an example from my life. Um, so many of you might know that well, we have two, two children. Our second boy was born last month at the start of January. And um, my wife, Lindsay, and son, Judah, ended up being in hospital for the first two and a half weeks um, because he was diagnosed with suspected meningitis. And over the course of that time, we had a number of different um, medical staff caring for us, and often they'd introduce themselves at the start of the day. But there's one nurse that we hadn't had, um, we had any dealings with, um, but we'd seen because she'd been kind of assigned to other patients in Lindsay's ward. And um, we'd both separately made the judgment that she just wasn't a very nice nurse. That was, I think we'd maybe heard her be direct to one of the patients at one point. I'm just trying to justify why we'd made that judgment, but I can't remember exactly, but we'd made that judgment. We just didn't want her to be Lindsay's nurse. But anyway, a few days later, as you'd expect, because Lindsay was in there for two and a half weeks, she was assigned to Lindsay, and she came and introduced herself at the start of the day and said, I'll be your nurse today. Um, and that day actually turned out to be quite a tough day for us as a whole family. Um, it was about a week into being in hospital and our baby Judah had to get antibiotics three times a day uh, intravenously. So they would put a small needle in his arm and try to keep it in place um, to, to, to administer the antibiotics. But because of the size of the needle and because of his age, it would often come out, it would fail um, within 24 hours. So seven days in, he'd had five cannulas and each time it took about an hour of them failing to put it in. So we'd listen to him down the corridor crying as they were failing to put needles in his arm or his leg. 
And so this, in this occasion, it was the fifth time it had fallen out in seven days. And um, he still had a week, over a week of antibiotics to go, and we're like, we can't just keep doing this over and over every day. It felt hugely frustrating and quite helpless. And actually, in that occasion, I was at home because our son was sleeping and Lindsay was in on her own because Judah was away. So she was sitting on her own in hospital in her bed, and this nurse comes in and says, um, I notice your son's name is Judah. And, um, and as he said, yeah, we're, um, is a, that's a biblical name. And we're like, yeah, we're, we're Christians. And she explained some of why we chose the name. And then the nurse said, I'd like to pray over you, if that's okay. Um, and then she started praying some verses from Isaiah over us. It still makes me a little bit emotional. <laughs> um, but God was so present to Lindsay, particularly in that moment, and to, and to us. He revealed himself and she reassured us that he was with us. And he did it through a nurse that we'd judgmentally written off, right? Now, I'd love to say that that's the only time that I've ever misjudged someone, but that would be a lie. <laughs> Which makes this teaching from James all the more challenging, doesn't it? Judging the character of a person in a split second, in this occasion for us, meant that we wrote someone off that God was eager to work through to bless us in a time when we really needed it. And so who are we to make those kinds of judgments? You know, James takes it even further, if it wasn't hard enough to think about judging someone. He also talks about the words that we use. Um, and Adele mentioned this a few weeks ago, but in this occasion he says, do not slander. He starts the verse with that. And the, the original word for slander is actually more like speak evil. So whereas we can sometimes think slander means saying something untrue about someone or lying about someone. What James is saying is more broad. What he's saying is, in any circumstance, speaking negatively about someone, even if the content of what you're saying is true, to choose to speak negatively about them to someone else is to put yourself in the position of God. Because you're labeling them by their faults and condemning them by their failures. <laughs> Heavy stuff, isn't it? And immediately you can jump to the exceptions to that rule. Because I'm sure there are exceptions. And if you're anything like me, you like to critique an argument as soon as you hear it. So you might think, well, surely in some occasions, it is right to talk negatively about someone when they've done something particularly bad. And you know, yes, that is right. There is a right place for that. It's a right place for earthly judgment. But I think the reason we like to jump to the exceptions is because it's actually just quite uncomfortable to sit in the reality that we probably judge people far more often than we ought to by our words, by the language we use when we describe and talk about others. It's uncomfortable to sit with the truth of that. So how can we shift our perspective? And James is writing, he's often directly quoting from the teachings of Jesus. We've seen that over the previous few weeks, haven't we? And this occasion is no different. This time he is quoting from a teaching that we find in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. And it's a very familiar passage to many of us, but I just want to read some of the verses. It's chapter 7, it says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So the main point is quite clear. Before we even think about condemning others with our words or in our own estimation of them, we need to remember that we are the project. I am the project. I am the unfinished project. And I'm standing here by God's grace, not because I've got it all together. 
And so fault finding in others should not be my default, default mode of operating. It shouldn't be our default way of operating. And if we decide that we want to work that way, the place that we should look is to ourselves. Because there's plenty that we can be working on in ourselves for the rest of our lives before we begin to look to others. I am the project. I, thought, I think it was important to say alongside that, as a bit of a like, slight tangent, but I think it's relevant. <laughs> when we talk about this thing, if you take that argument too far down this route, then you can say, well, if we never say anything, like, never challenge or correct or, or journey with one another more robustly um, as church family. But that's, I don't think that's true. I think there's a way of us doing that, but it's, it's very different, that we should be open to loving correction. We should still call one another to be set apart to follow Jesus. And sometimes bringing challenge is part of that journey. And actually, there's a few places in Scripture I just want to draw us to very quickly to kind of point to how we can do that and what the difference is. Because the key is that there's a big difference between judging someone and offering gentle correction, between making a conclusion about someone's character and initiating a conversation. There's an important distinction between speaking to others about someone's faults versus going to someone directly to raise a concern. Isn't there? Our intentions and our character make all the difference. And there's two passages. One of them is Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, which says, and it'll come up, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So in that short verse, we see three characteristics of how we should engage with that kind of uh, journey as church family together. The first is that it's relational going directly to the person rather than speaking about them to others. The second is gentleness. Paul urges that you're gentle, not lecturing, not heaping shame, but approaching with kindness and tenderness. And the third is with humility, that we never get it into our heads that we're above being tempted, even as we mature in faith. Relational gentleness, humility. I would argue it's pretty much impossible to go with that kind of attitude if you've already judged the person in your heart, right? I think this is a good telltale sign if you have. <laughs> and the other passage I just want to draw us to quickly is in Romans chapter 2, um, which shows some of this same working of why we should not judge. Um, and after Paul spends the first chapter laying out the fact that all of us fall short of, God, short of God's glory, he goes on to write these words in chapter 2. When you... A mere human being pass judgment on others and yet do the same things. Do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? I love that verse, right? God's kindness is intended to lead you into repentance. So if God chooses kindness as his primary mode of operating with us, it's fair to say that we, too, should always be kind in our dealings with one another. So as we think about journeying together in community, it's a good frame of reference that we ought to be relationally driven, gentle, with humility and kindness. So to return to James now in the passage here, this is one little section at the end of this um, verses that we read, and it said, but you, who are you to judge your neighbours? And so for James, by this point, it's clearly a rhetorical question. He's kind of already punched you in the gut. Now you're on the ground. He's like giving you a kick. He's like, Do you, who are you to judge your neighbor? 
But I want to just turn that question around a little bit and ask it more literally. Like, who are we called to be? What kind of community does Jesus call us to be as we follow him? I don't know if has everyone been watching The Chosen at all or watched the little bits of it? Has anyone seen it? The TV series? One of the things that I really love about it, it's brilliant if you haven't watched it, I'd really recommend it, is the way that it portrays conflict amongst the 12 disciples. And because and it really, they've done a lot of work into this to research some of, some of how the different dynamics of the different people in the disciples would work together. And it it's really, is really helpful because you couldn't get more different people in a room if you tried. Because you have Matthew, who was a tax collector and abused the Roman tax collection system in order to keep money for himself and abuse the poor. You have Peter, who's this headstrong Jewish fisherman, who might well even have been a recipient of Matthew's abuse of power, because it was in one community. I'd never really thought about it before, but they present that as potential. So you potentially have within the disciples someone who oppressed someone else in the previous um, engagement with living, right? And then on top of that, you have Simon the Zealot, who was trained to kill Roman dignitaries. And you have two brothers who argued so often that they were given the nickname Sons of Thunder. And so you can bet that this group of people struggled with judging one another. And actually, you can understand a bit more why there was quarreling among them when you read about that in the Gospels. Who is best among us, they say to Jesus at one point. Who has got this following you business most right? And Jesus responds to them by saying, the one who serves, completely flipping it on his head. That's the kind of community that Jesus called to follow him, and it's still the kind of community that Jesus calls to follow him. We are a random group of people, aren't we? There'd be no other reason for us to be in this room together. From different backgrounds, upbringings, and careers, and that's the beautiful thing about church. But that also means that we encounter people who are different to us, who have different ways of looking at the world, looking at politics, have different values around how we ought to live. It also means that we journey alongside people who are in very different stages in our journey of following Jesus. But the thing that unites us is Jesus, his salvation and his kingship in our lives. There's a German theologian called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he understood this tension really well in his writings. In his book he wrote called Life Together, where he unpacks some of how this looks. And he writes this, it's a long quote, but this is coming towards the end, so stay with me as I read this. Christians who are put in a community for the first time will often bring with them a very definite image of what Christian communal life should be. And they'll be anxious to realize it. But God's grace quickly frustrates all such dreams. A great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate with ourselves, is bound to overwhelm us as surely as God desires to lead us into an understanding of genuine Christian community. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live in a dream world. That sentence is a big one in the middle, but it's a really helpful one. A great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we're fortunate with ourselves, is bound to overwhelm us as surely as God desires to lead us into an understanding of genuine Christian community. Community marked by God's grace. In a big church like ours at Central or a bigger church, the danger is that we can almost avoid doing some of that kind of work. We can find pockets of people who think like us and have the same experiences as us. And to name it is one of the things I think we need to be careful of in this season as we're coming together, as we're discerning together as church family, 
is that, and also as we kind of reflect back in the last few years and, and the journeys that we've all been on through some, uh, some very challenging years, the danger is that our individual ideals of what church should look like get frustrated and challenged by the reality of the people around us in front of us and in front of us. The reality of this congregation you're called together to follow Jesus. But what unites us has never been a shared politic or stage of life or church background. What unites us is our vision to pursue Jesus together as family loving this city. And if we're doing it right, up close together, we will miscommunicate. We will sometimes offend one another. We'll sometimes hurt one another. And in those times, this passage in James is such a helpful reminder that judgment isn't an option for us. We have to instead choose to engage with the hard conversations, with gentleness, with humility, and crucially doing it knowing God's grace. In fact, I think this kind of mature community is, which is one of the best witnesses that we could offer to the world. Because you might be able to argue with this, and we could chat about it afterwards, but I wonder that there's not really any other community on earth that functions like this. And in fact, I see more and more communities kind of fracturing into smaller groups of people who all think exactly the same. But what marks us out as different is that we are a group of people from a variety of backgrounds and experience who are united around Jesus. So can I encourage us, let's commit afresh to that kind of grace community together with gentleness, with kindness, and humility as we pursue Jesus together. Can I pray for us? Why don't we stand with me if you're able? Father God, we invite your presence to continue to be with us this morning. Thank you for the way that you work in our lives. That is your kindness that you choose to reveal and draw us back towards you, to show us places in our lives where we've not been following you and where you invite us to turn back and know you as loving Father. Forgive us for where we have judged others and tried to take your place, where we've forgotten that you are a good and right judge, and that you're fair and loving. I pray that you'd renew in us a, a hope for a church, a hope for a community as we live working together in your grace. Give us patience as we journey together with one another. And help us to even come back to the people that we've written off with renewed perspective in you. As I was praying for, for today, I also just got the sense that for some of us it, um, that God wants to do a work in um, kind of clearing out cynicism in our lives, where we've become cynical of things or in our judgment of things. Um, we were quick to question rather than to invite God to be present in them. So if that's you, I just want to pray. Father, would we be able to, again this morning, to replace places of cynicism in our lives with places of hope? That we'd have even a, um, a renewed awareness of where you're working, almost like a naive hope, a continuing trust in your work, even in amongst places that have been challenging, places where we've uh, drawn up a kind of defense mechanism of just questioning or, or dismissing rather than questioning to see whether it's true, so whether you're in it, whether it's good. 
Would you open up places in our hearts where we have, have hardened and closed off? And we invite you to be at work and continue to be at work just now as we worship. <laughs>